what is happening is that Jesus has made a significant claim through the healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda. And the man fails to respond to who Jesus is. The man does not accept Christ as his Savior. But the Jews immediately understand that what Jesus is doing and the words that come as a result of what he has done is a definite claim to deity. And so they accuse him of claiming to be equal with God. And this results in them wanting to kill him. And so Jesus now is going to enter into like a courtroom setting where he is going to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth as he proclaims his deity. And ultimately, it's going to end with him turning his defense into a prosecution. The defendant will become the prosecutor, and he's going to tell the religious leaders of his day, you people are the one that stand condemned, not me. You people stand condemned, not me. And so the big idea, what the evangelist wants to communicate to us is that we are to testify that Jesus is God. Testify that Jesus is God. Once again, we're going to read the entire account because it provides us with the necessary context to better understand this story. So John chapter 5, verse 1. John chapter 5, verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed. Verse 5. Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been in that condition a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be made well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked. And that day was the Sabbath. The Jews, therefore, said to him who was cured, It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. He answered and said, He who made me well said to me, Take up your bed and walk. Then they asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? But the one who, had healed, who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had wither, withdrawn a multitude being in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Verse 16, For this reason the Jews prosecuted Jesus and sought to kill him, because he had done these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father has been working until now, and I have been working. Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Verse 19, Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, 
The Son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the Father do. For whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does, and he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to those whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Verse 24, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is come and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear it will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself and has given him authority to execute judgment. And because he is the Son of God, do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. There is another who bears witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. You have sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Yet I do not receive testimony from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was the burning and shining lamp, and you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. But I have a greater witness than John. For the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do, bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. And the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form, but you do not have his word abiding in you because whom he sent, him you did not believe. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. Verse 41. I do not receive honor from men, but I know you, that you do not have the love of God in you. I have come to my fathers in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. How can you believe who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from the only God? Do not think that I, have, I shall accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. For if you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote about me. But if you do not believe in his writings, how will you believe my words? Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for its teaching. We pray that as we study it this morning and hear it preached, that it would have impact on our lives and draw us to a relationship with you. In your name we pray, amen. 
So Jesus is responding to the situation with the man that he has just healed. And this brings about a situation with the Jews in which they are seeking to kill him. And so this is Jesus' defense. Why is it that Jesus can heal on the Sabbath? Why can Jesus say, I am working on the Sabbath just like my father has been working on the Sabbath? That is a claim to deity. Why does Jesus get to make that claim? Who gives him the right? And Jesus says, the first thing is, my relationship with the Father gives me the right to make this claim, to claim that I am indeed God. So in verse 19, you see he makes that statement that Jesus can act, cannot act independently of God the Father. So he's doing what God the Father wants him to do. Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the Father do. For whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. Jesus is doing and accomplishing what God the Father wants him to accomplish. And so he's not on his own mission. He is doing what God wants him to do. He's accomplishing what God has planned for him. And he's going to continue on in that. And he's going to tell us, that the love that the Father has for Jesus has resulted in Jesus having greater responsibility and these works he's, he's going to outline for us. So verse 20 he says, For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things he himself does. So there's this constant communion between the Father and the Son and they know what's going on because the Father tells the Son. But then he goes on in verse 20, he says, And he will show him greater works than these, that you may marvel. Jesus is claiming that he's going to be given greater responsibilities, greater works to do than what they've already seen. They're in awe, they're in shock that a man could heal someone on the Sabbath. They knew what that was a claim to. It was a claim to deity. And it was just jaw-dropping for the Jews. They're like, how could you do that how could you do that and jesus says you think that's cool god the father has greater responsibilities that he's going to give me and it's going to result in you being even more in awe of who i am and now after he tells them i'm going to be given greater responsibilities he's going to tell us what those responsibilities are and those responsibilities are to give life and also, ultimately, to be the judge of humanity. He is the source of protection from the coming judgment, but he is also the coming judge. And so that's what Jesus is going to outline for us in verses 21 and 22. Verse 21, the Son is given the responsibility to give life. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. In the Old Testament, as you read various Old Testament accounts of resurrection, and I know that he's not talking about resurrection here. He's talking about salvation, life, from, uh, salvation from the uh, results of spiritual death. That's what is the context here. But in the Old Testament, every time you have a resurrection, it's because God is involved. That's where life comes from. And so Jesus says, the Father has the responsibility to give life. 
But now, because I'm here, and because the Father has given me that responsibility, life can also be found in me. I am a life giver to the world. And so he says, this is one of the jobs, this is one of the responsibilities that the Father has given me that magnifies and shows that I am indeed who I say I am. I am God. But then he goes on in verse 22 and he makes another claim. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. So this, the life was a reference to heaven. And then in verse 22, the Son is given the responsibility to judge. The Son is given the responsibility to judge. And so the very thing that they are frustrated with is actually going to be turned around and become their condemnation. Because they're not willing to accept him, they're going to be condemned for it. And you're going to see that Jesus moves into what provides life. To whom will I give this life that I have been given the responsibility to give? Does Jesus just give life to everyone? No. He gives life to those who come to him in saving faith. And he's going to deal with that very efficiently in verses 24 and following. But right now, he's just introducing us to these ideas. These are the responsibilities. These are the greater works that I have been given from God. And then in verse 23, we see the purpose. Why? Why did God the Father choose to provide the Son with these responsibilities? Why didn't he just do it? Why didn't he just send a good prophet to come to the earth and to tell people about him and have them change? Why did he choose to use the Son? Verse 23. That all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. He says the purpose is that the Father and the Son would be equally honored, that they would be realized as who they are, that they are God, that they are truly equal, which is the accusation that the Jews are bringing against him. They're saying, you can't claim to do work on the Sabbath and to be perpetually doing that because that's something only God can do. And only God can work on the Sabbath because, you know, the universe is his domain and as such he doesn't lift anything above his head. That's the argument here. So God's not really completely working because he fills the whole universe. So when he works, he's not lifting it above himself. So it's okay for God to do it. But for you to make this claim is just out there. And Jesus is saying, I have been given the responsibility to provide life to humanity. And I've also been given the responsibility to judge humanity. And why is this the case? It's because God wants you to honor me and him equally. But then he also makes another interesting claim. You can't honor God the Father like you're supposed to unless you're honoring the Son. Right? That's what he says. Verse 23. Middle of, verse, of the verse. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Sometimes we think, well, I, I'm in relationship with God. I... I read my Bible, I go to church, I give money. God has to be pleased with me. 
God has to be pleased with me. I, I, I do all the things that God would possibly want. And yet what we're going to see him develop in verses 24 and following is the idea that you have to come to Jesus in saving faith. That's the primary way in which Jesus wants us to honor him, is to come to him in saving faith and to realize that we are sinners, that we stand condemned before a righteous, holy God, that nothing we could possibly do could bring us into communion with him that we have to be changed in order to be reconciled to God. And after that, then we can continue to honor God in other ways, by, by serving Him in the church, by giving generously to the work of the ministry here and abroad, by taking good care of your neighbors, by honoring your wife, by respecting your husbands and submitting to them, by being obedient children, by being good employees, by being good employers. All these things flow out of the fact that we have believed in Christ. And after we believe in Christ, then we have truly honored Christ, and then only can we honor God the Father. But until we come to Christ realizing, I am a sinner, I stand condemned, only through you can I come to saving knowledge of the Father. Only then can we honor Jesus, and only then can we honor God the Father. But Jesus moves on. So the question comes up, do you honor the Son? Is that something that you are actively involved in? And, and primarily the emphasis is, have you placed your faith in Jesus? Is that what you depend on for your eternal security? Are you trusting that God is going to look at the fact that you are here this morning and he's going to go, that's really nice of them to be here. I'm just warmed to the very core of my being as God. And I don't think I could possibly exist unless they'd come to church this morning. And God will somehow look at that and be like, wow, I'm just honored that they would come to my church service. That's not going to earn you anything before God. You cannot honor the Father without honoring the Son. And the way that Jesus wants you to honor him is by placing your faith in his finished work on your account. But then Jesus is going to go on and he's going to further explain his responsibilities from the Father in verses 24 through 30. And the first one is, Jesus' Jesus's responsibilities are closely connected. You're going to see him repeat the idea of his responsibility to give life and his responsibility to be the ultimate judge of humanity. Verse 24, most assuredly, that's kind of like uh, in our court scene, you know, we say, I swear to tell the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help me God. It's like what Jesus is saying here. He says that three times in the text. He wants us to realize that what he's telling us is, foundational. It is absolutely certain. It is something that you cannot have life without trusting in and believing in. Verse 24, most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me, he has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. 
How do we get this life that Jesus has been given the responsibility to give? How do we avoid the judgment that Jesus has been given the responsibility to judge? It's by coming to Christ and saving faith. Some people say, well, I've always believed in God. I've always believed in God. Nobody's always believed in God. And nobody's always believed in God the way that Jesus is calling for us to believe in him. It is a realization that we stand condemned, that Christ has paid the penalty on the cross, and that if we are willing to place our faith in him and him alone and his finished work on our behalf, then what are we given? We are given everlasting life, and we escape the judgment that he has been given the responsibility to do to those who refuse to accept him. But Jesus continues to develop, and he's going to talk about the spiritually dead and how they come to life. He's going to actually talk about two different ways of coming to life. Right here and earlier in the text, we've seen people coming to life who are spiritually dead. He's picking up on some of the ideas of Ephesians 2, where we are dead in our trespasses and sins, and we have nothing that would appeal to God. And yet, when we come to Christ in saving faith, he makes us spiritually alive. Verse 25. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming, and now is, when the dead, that is the spiritually dead, not people who are physically dead yet, will get there. He's going to talk about those who are physically dead. But when the spiritually dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear, that is, believe, respond in saving faith, realize that they are sinners, that they have offended a holy God, and come to Him in saving faith, what will happen to those people? They will live. They will be given the gift of life. But then he goes on in verses 26 through 27, he says, Jesus has been given life and judgment. He's going to repeat some of these same ideas that he's already said. He's going to develop them more fully for us. Why is it that Jesus has the ability to give us life? It's because Jesus has life in himself. He is independent from the Father. He does not continue to exist because of the Father. The Father has given him life in himself. Verse 26, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself and has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. Jesus has the ability to forgive you of your sins because he has been granted life and he has the ability, if you fail to ever come to him in saving faith, to eventually one day judge you and condemn you to a crisis eternity in hell. And that's the argument that he's making here. He's using a terminology that is actually from the Old Testament. The last phrase in verse 27 is the Son of Man. And in Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 through 14, that's where we are first introduced to this phrase. If you would turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 through 14. And in this text, you will see that the responsibility for judgment is associated with this individual, the Son of Man. The Son of Man is a term that refers to Jesus' deity. You might think Son of God is the more primary term referring to Jesus' deity. But in the Jewish mind, because of this passage, when they heard somebody say, I am son of man, 
they immediately thought of this passage and the responsibilities that are given to the Son of Man in Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 through 14, are so significant, so huge, that there is no way any man could be given these responsibilities. These are responsibilities of God. And so Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 through 14. I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. I watched then because of the sound of the pompous word which the horn was speaking. I watched till the beast was slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame, that is, judgment. As for the rest of the beast, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven, he came to the Ancient of Days, that is God the Father, and they brought him near before him. Then to him, that is the Son of Man, what is given? Dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. So when Jesus says in John chapter 5, verse 27, these words that I am the Son of Man, all of a sudden he has used terms that are referred to only God in the Old Testament to refer to himself. And he's making a strong claim to deity, one that the Jews could not mistake. This is definitely a claim to responsibilities that only God has. He then goes on in verses 28 through 29. Jesus is given the responsibility to resurrect. This is resurrection from physical death now at this point. Do not marvel at this. Okay, He's, he's told them, I'm going to be given greater responsibilities and you're going to marvel at this. But then he explains to them what all this means and he says, do not marvel at this. He's going to tell them that this also means that he has responsibility to resurrect. And those are res who are resurrected are not going to just cease to exist if they've lived a life that is not pleasing to God, that did not trust Him. They will face a judgment. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear His voice, and when they hear His voice, they will come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. There is a permanent state that those who have believed in Christ will enjoy, that is, heaven. And there is a permanent state that those who have done evil, that is, they have failed to believe, will suffer. And so the idea of those who have done good are those who have believed in him. It's not referring to, you know, your works that are good are put on this side of the scale and your works that are evil are put on this side of the scale. And whichever one weighs out better, you get to get resurrected to one or the other. It is a statement of, have you believed? He's looking back at verse 24 that emphasized so strongly the importance of coming to Christ and saving faith. And then in verse 30, you might think, well, that's really, really harsh. 
You know, like, we don't like anybody to lose in our culture. Like, everybody gets a trophy. Guys participated, you all get a trophy. So why should anybody get condemned to a crisis eternity in hell? How could God do that and be righteous? I mean, if I play in a little league, I get a trophy just because I was part of the little league. That's how we kind of think about life. But Jesus says that what he has said that he's going to do is righteous and it is just. Verse 30, I can of myself do nothing as I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous. Because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. Jesus says, this responsibility to give life to those who come to me in saving faith and to judge those who reject me is righteous. It fulfills God's desire. And so I have to do it. And so as you're here, which righteous destination is yours? Have you come to Christ in saving faith? Have you believed on Jesus Christ as your only source of safety from condemnation? Are you continuing to live your life either rejecting the idea that there is a coming judgment or thinking that somehow you can do enough good to outweigh all the bad that is in your life? And if either one of those is you, I encourage you to stop. Talk to me. Let's learn and see once again that Christ says that the only way to come to him and to avoid the coming condemnation is to place your faith in him and him alone. There is a righteous destination that we will all face. Either it will be heaven or it will be hell. And Jesus, as he is making his defense for why can I heal somebody on the Sabbath and make a claim so blatantly that I am God, he's pleading with these Jews that are seeking to kill him and he's telling them, come to me in saving faith. I still want to save you from this eternal condemnation. It is amazing how much mercy Jesus demonstrates to men who are seeking to kill him. Jesus is still pleading with them. And you'll continue to see him pleading with people that are sinners who have never believed in who he is through the rest of his defense. Even when he gets to the place where he's taking his defense and he turns it drastically into a prosecution of those who are denying his claims. Jesus then says, I'm going to demonstrate the witnesses that I have that defend my claims to deity. It's interesting in verse 31, Jesus says, my witness is not true. Some of you are like, what? He's just made some pretty significant claims. Why would he say something like that? Verse 31, if I bear witness to myself, my witness is not true. Why does he say that? Jesus only does the Father's will. So he demonstrates through others' testimony that he is following the Father. So what he's saying is, I'm doing God's will. So this isn't really my testimony. It's the testimony of God. He's actually right here once again claiming a higher authority. This isn't just simply my testimony. You think it is my testimony, and so you reject it, and you think that I'm telling you what is false. 
But what is actually going on here is I am telling you the testimony of God. I only do that which the Father wants. And so this testimony is true, and it is something that you need to respond to. But because you don't respond to my own words, I'll provide you other testimony, other witnesses. I'll call up four other testimonies for you to examine. And as you examine them, respond in saving faith to who I am. That is what is happening here. First of all, he points to John the Baptist, who bears witness to who he is. There is another who bears witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesses of me is true. Jesus says, this person's witness is true. Verse 33, you have sent to John. You guys went and visited John. We've already seen this text. Remember in John chapter 1 when the religious leaders sent to Jesus? or sent to John while he was ministering, and they asked him questions about who he was, and asked him, are you the Messiah? And he said, no, I'm not the Messiah. Jesus says, you've already sent to him. You've already interacted with the testimony of John. And receive, uh, and he has borne witness to the truth. Verse 34, yet I do not receive testimony from man. But I say these things that you may be saved. He says, this testimony is not the greatest, my testimony would be far better. I'm actually God. I'm not just man. This guy's just man. So it's not the greatest. And then verse 35, he was the burning and shining lamp. God set him ablaze so that he would demonstrate who the coming Messiah was. And what does he say about that burning and shining lamp? He says, and you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. They got excited, didn't they? They got excited and they all came to see him and they're asking him questions and they're interacting with him. And are you the Messiah? And he's like, no. And then they're like, no. Oh. And then Jesus moves on and he says, there's another witness. Jesus' own works. So he's pointing not only to his coming works of giving life and judging, but I think he's also pointing back at the signs that we've seen Jesus perform. And he's saying, these works that you have seen me accomplish are witnesses to my identity. Verse 36, But I have a greater witness than John's for the works which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. Jesus says, The fact that I was able to heal a man on the Sabbath and I can claim that I have been doing work as the Father has been doing work on Sabbaths means that I am God. My works bear witness to me. Unfortunately, they've already rejected this testimony as well, haven't they? That's why we're in this trial scene. The Father bears witness to Jesus as well. Verse 37, And the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form but you do not have his word abiding in you because whom he sent, him you do not believe. Jesus makes some pretty big accusations. You're beginning to see evidence that he's moving his defense from that of a defendant to that of a prosecutor. What does he say about them and their relationship to God? What is their relationship? What is their standing before a holy, righteous, just God? Verse 37, or verse 38. 
but you do not have his word abiding in you. And then in verse 37, he said, you have neither heard his voice at any time. These are Jews that are continually studying the scriptures. And what does he say to them? You have never heard his voice at any time, nor seen his form, and you don't have his word abiding in you. The same Jewish scriptures that Jesus has that should have given them life, that should have pointed them to their need of a Savior, they become pious and thought that they could, in their own efforts, in their own work, in fulfilling the law, come to a righteous standing before God. And Jesus says, You have never seen me, and my words are not abiding in you. And so Jesus is saying, I'm giving you this third witness, the Father also bears witness to me, but you've already rejected it. And then finally, Jesus points to the scriptures and says, the scriptures also testify to who I am. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. We were just talking about. They're continually searching the scriptures. They're studying the scriptures. That's what they spend a huge portion of their day doing. Because they think that they get life through doing it. But what is Jesus saying about them? but you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. Jesus says you don't get life through fulfilling the law. The law points us to the fact that we are in need of a Savior. The law demonstrates our sinfulness, and it should make you realize, I am completely unworthy. I am in need of a Savior. I can't do this on my own. And then Jesus comes, and he's done it for me, and I can accept his free gift but because they become pious in their understanding and interpretation of the law, they reject him. So all four witnesses that Jesus brings forward in the court of law, they have already rejected and pushed aside. And so it brings up the question, what will you do with the testimony of Jesus? What will you do with the testimony of John? Will you respond in saving faith? What will you do with the testimony of Jesus' works? Will you respond in saving faith? What will you do with the testimony of God the Father? What will you do with the testimony of Jesus' words? Will you respond in saving faith? And that's just the beginning because what then comes after that is a different type of life, one that honors and glorifies God by ministering in a myriad of different ways. But unfortunately, because they have remained as they are and have refused to respond in saving faith, Jesus now at this point changes from that of a defendant to that of a prosecutor. And he's going to change and move into prosecution mode in verse 41 through 47. Jesus points to their failures. They have failed God in some ways. And he's going to point to those ways. And he's going to say, because of these things, you are not responding and saving faith. And he's going to urge them once again in compassion and love. He's urging them even though these are the people that are wanting to kill him, he's urging them to come to him in saving faith. They're seeking the honors of others and reject God's love. Verses 41 through 44. I do not receive honor from men. Something that they're doing. They're seeking the honor of men, and Jesus rejects it out flat. But I know you that you do not have the love of God in you. 
I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. Jesus says, I've come proclaiming that I am the Messiah, and you reject me. And yet, if somebody else came claiming to be sent by God, you would accept him. Because he would do it in a human way, and he would be accepting honor and giving honor. And that is something I'm not willing to do. Verse 44, how can you believe who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from the only God? It is interesting. Those who give honor to the Son, who believe in the Son and then give honor to the Father, what is given to them? Honor from the Father, right? Verse 44, if you give honor to the Son... And by doing that, give honor to the Father, verse 44. How can you believe who receive honor from one another? They're just giving and exchanging honor among themselves. Hey, you're doing a great job, pal. And then they pat you on the back and just, you know, the good boys club, right? How can you who believe you receive how can you believe who receive honor from one another and do not seek the honor that comes from the only God. And, and so they're rejecting the honor that could come from God in exchange for the honor that is exchanged among themselves. And that is his first prosecution. And then his second one is Moses will serve as the ultimate accuser. He points to the purpose of Moses' writings. He points to the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law is to reveal your sinfulness, to show you that you are insufficient to earn righteousness on your own account, so that you need Jesus' finished work on the cross to provide you with salvation. And he points to that and he urges them once again to come to him in saving faith. Verses 45 through 47. Do not think that I shall accuse you to the Father. I'm not going to be involved in accusing you. Who's going to accuse you? The person whose scriptures you study all the time. There is one who accuses you, Moses, in whom you trust. You think that through studying him and becoming pompous and understanding the law and interpreting it and writing about it, that you earn righteousness and a good standing before God. And he says, you've missed the purpose of the law. For if you believed Moses, if you'd understand Moses' purpose, and Moses' purpose is that the law demonstrates our sin and need of a Savior. That's why we have the law, to demonstrate that we are in need of something more. If you'd believed that, if you'd understood that you were a sinner, that's the purpose of the law, to show that you can't keep all 600 plus laws. Me and you are completely incapable of doing that. If you'd understood that, if you'd believed who Moses says you are, that you are a sinner and incapable of keeping the laws. When Jesus comes and says, I have life and I can give it freely to whoever will come in saving faith, you would have flocked to him. But you rejected Moses. You thought that Moses' purpose was instead to show how pompous one could be and to interpret the law and put restrictions on the Jewish people. You misunderstood it. You did not believe Moses, and so Moses will accuse you. For if you believed Moses, you would have believed me, but he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? There's a complete misunderstanding of the purpose of Scripture. 
And because they failed to understand the basics of the law and the fact that the law points us to the fact that we are sinners and that we are in need of a Savior, I'm a sinner, you're a sinner. That's the purpose of the law. Why did Christ come? Christ came to give life and to give it more abundantly. And so he's proclaiming who he is. And even as he turns to prosecution, he says, Moses will be your accuser. You can still see that he's still yearning for them to come to him in saving faith. That is Jesus' defense. Jesus defends who he is. He points to various witnesses. He points to his responsibilities. And after they've rejected all that, he then prosecutes them and says, unless something is changed in your life, you will face the condemnation. And it's the same thing for us. If you are sitting here tonight, or this morning, and you have not come to Christ in saving faith, if you have not realized that you are a sinner and that you stand condemned and that the only hope that you have for eternal life is to come to Christ in saving faith, then you too will face the same condemnation. You too will face a crisis eternity in hell. So one of the big ideas is that we honor the Son. And the primary way that Jesus wants us to honor the Son is by placing our faith in Him and Him only. He is the only means by which we escape the coming condemnation. And then out of that will flow a honor for God the Father, and it will result in a love for your spouse. It will result in a greater work ethic. It will result in ministry within the body of Christ and a deep compassion and care and a desire to serve one another. But all of those come from the fact that you have believed in and you've placed your faith in Christ and Christ only. The big idea is accept the testimony of the Son. Place your faith in Him and Him only as your means to salvation, to escape the coming judgment. Jesus Christ is God, and he's made an excellent case for it in this passage. Let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you for who you are. We pray that as we have listened to Jesus's defense of his identity, that we would be challenged to respond to it in saving faith. We pray that if there are people here who have never realized their own sinfulness and realized their personal need for you to come and to save them, that they would either talk to me or talk to somebody else and to seek to come to a saving knowledge of who you are and that they would receive your free gift of salvation. We pray that you would be able to give life and not have to give judgment instead. In your name we pray. Amen.